Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. And hi, I'm Jennifer Waits. Today, we're going to take a virtual trip down to the Southern Hemisphere to a land far away from us here in North America uh, known as New Zealand. Paul, you, you took a trip to New Zealand, and just like uh, a good radio survivor always should, you, you did a little bit of... Um, Visiting radio stations, community radio stations in another country. Yes, I did. I was uh, lucky enough to visit the city of Wellington, New Zealand, which is the capital city. It's on the southern end of the North Island. New Zealand, of course, is made up of two islands, the North and the South Island. And altogether, New Zealand as a nation is only about four million people. And Wellington is a lovely city. It, it looks a lot like a tiny San Francisco. Hmm. It's exceptionally hilly. Um, it's bounded by the water as a very coastal sort of climate. And of course, I was there in the month of uh, February, which in the Southern Hemisphere is summer. So it was lovely. It was warm. It was breezy. In fact, it was exceptionally breezy. The day that I managed to make it over to Access Radio, Wellington Access Radio, they were having like 35 mile an hour winds. Exciting. So Wellington Access Radio. Sounds like San Francisco. Yeah. And um, what makes New Zealand radio worth talking about today on Radio Survivor? So I've not been able to verify this claim, but my, my friend who is from New Zealand, he says that there are more stations in New Zealand per capita radio stations mm. than in any other nation. And indeed, there's a pretty well-developed uh, radio uh, industry there. There is also a state-run public radio, Radio New Zealand, but they also have uh, community radio, which is what we're going to talk a little bit about today. But their community radio is a little different than what we're uh, generally con- consider community radio in the United States. And the model is actually, to some extent, different than in a lot of countries, uh, even, even their, their close neighbors, roughly relatively close neighbors in, in Australia. And so that's kind of why I wanted to uh, sit down and learn a little bit more about community radio, which they actually call community access radio. And I think that that difference in what they call the stations should already kind of uh, turn on some lights in your head of ways of thinking about it. Because we think about, say, public access television in the United States. Which would mean uh, for us here that uh, volunteer members of the community uh, are able to use this media resource as a place to create their own their own radio their own stuff yeah but it's a little bit different than than the model maybe that we're accustomed to so um i did have a chance to stop by to wellington access radio which is located just a few blocks off of uh, a pedestrian mall uh, called cuba street which is lined with restaurants and shops it's a very fun place to go visit and they're just in like a second floor of, of a commercial uh, street and uh, they have nice signage out there. It's easy to find and uh, went upstairs and met with Kristen Patterson, who is the station manager. And so she tells us all about what is Wellington Access Radio. We are a community access radio station and we are part of a group of 12 community access media production houses uh, across New Zealand, and that's called the Community Access Media Alliance. And all 12 of our stations, are, uh, we get funding from the government through their funding body, New Zealand On Air, to create content for diverse communities 
the the diversity remit um, sort of hedges also with marginalisation. So it's under Section 36C of the Broadcasting Act um, that this funding has come about, and it's uh, for content to be provided for women, children, youth, um, ethnicity, disability, and religion, but also general diversity fits in there, so sexuality, that kind of thing, um, minority political groups. It's very much the old school kind of freedom of speech thing, um, in that uh, people who were giving a voice to the voiceless, I suppose, um, we would not have white power on the station. So it's not about giving every single person that platform. And what makes us quite different is that um, our remit includes by, for, and about. So it's not um, a Pākehā or white um, Anglo-Saxon journalist contextualising or host contextualising um, the minority experience. It is the group themselves being trained and supported by us um, and to have their capacity built to actually report by, for, and about their own community. Within that, we never expect people to have to perform um, their marginalisation. You know, we don't expect refugee background communities to talk about traumatic survivor stories. They could be talking about playing soccer in Arabic. Um, yeah, so it's really community driven. Alongside that sits New Zealand music and just general community programming that, um, you know, local artists, local musicians, local personalities, environmental campaigns, protests, all of that sort of stuff. And that's Kristen Patterson, who is the station manager of Wellington Access Radio, telling us a little bit about the station. And I think, you know, for those of us who are, who are used to uh, community radio in the United States, or college radio for that matter, I, I think what I would highlight there is how, you know, there really is, they have this uh, mandate to go out engage with communities that should be represented on air and bring them on air. And and while that is certainly, I think, something which community radio stations in the U.S. often try to do, very often um, I think community radio in the U.S. tends to be a bit more of an open-door model, right? There are opportunities for individuals and sometimes also groups to get like involved self, self-selected producer community exactly. like like yeah. a, uh, someone out there in the in the community thinks this is important to me i'm going to enter the building and and uh, take my spot at the microphones but you're saying that in new zealand there at, at that community access radio station they'll actually um do the work to try to bring those people in which is more of an active it's a it's harder work for that person inside the station, but it, I'm sure it pays off. Yeah. How does that actually play out? And maybe we'll hear more yeah. in your interview. I'm I'm curious. It's interesting that this is all part of the mandate, and and I'm wondering how specific that mandate is as far as is there follow up uh, by by the government oh, to yeah. ensure that these stations are actually bringing in all sorts of community groups. Yes, indeed. I, I did ask that question of, of Kristen. And by way of background, you know, she really elaborated on this funding model. As she mentioned that they do receive uh, government funding in order to provide this access, but they're not actually wholly funded from the government. Uh, funding comes from two different sources, as she'll explain. We're only half funded by the government. Mm -hmm. The other half of the money comes from broadcast donations from the broadcaster. So the Indian Community Programme their airtime, which is $40 an hour, 
is paid for by the Indian Community Association. That's fantastic, except less marginalised groups have more money. So Esther, who, who you saw before, her job as the community liaison is to go out, engage with communities, tell them that this opportunity for representation is here, and to try to get them to broadcast. However, most can't afford it. So we do a lot of attempting to align our schedule with the census data. So if there's an increase in um, a certain ethnic population, they need representation. So there's the schedule we'd like to have and the connections we actually have with the community. Um, however, the financial reality is that half of those people are not represented in the schedule. So we go to some people, some people come to us. Um, however, our funding body is looking at potentially for certain at-risk or marginalised or underrepresented groups, giving us a tiny bit more to ensure that they are represented because we don't want to do the job halfway, really is the thing. Um, and so, yeah, we, we go out and we network and then other people come to us. Um, but this brings a hilarious point that I've had community groups come to me and say, why did you pick that Samoan group to represent my community? say I, I didn't they came to us you're allowed to make a show too so some groups have actually gone back to the community and said you're not allowed on air we are which is interesting and that's a slightly unresolvable issue other than for me to constantly go to the community and say welcome please come in there's a lot of research that goes in you know the human rights commission um, the office of ethnic communities government departments often saying um, you know, who, who is at need, or who has the need, who might be at risk. Um, we're part of the Refugee Background Stakeholder Group in Wellington, who commissioned quite a lot of research, um, and as an example, have found out that in the Wellington region, the most marginalised refugee background group is Colombian women. Hmm. So this kind of thing really is the driver of, right, we need to get Colombian women in here making a show help empower them, but, well, help them empower themselves, I suppose. Um, uh, yeah, and so, and, and then other things like just seeing tonally what's happening in the media. Um, obviously at the moment with coronavirus in, in China, that's engendered lots of racism in New Zealand, so we need to ensure that we're being very positive and inviting and welcoming and representative of the Chinese community. So that, yeah, it, it's a lot of stuff um, like that, and, or you know, just seeing that, um, at the moment for the trans community that uh, the gender identification bill is going through parliament so we want to ensure that the trans community has representation here and feels empowered and feels welcome. So there's lots of different things that we kind of keep an eye on from a social perspective to see yeah, where we can be helpful I suppose. We get our funding based on how many hours we put out to air. So every station has a slightly different schematic of how they do that. Um, technically you could charge a bit less for airtime, get more programs and get a bit more money from the government, but the government also wants us to be about half funded ourselves, so it's a tricky one. Um, uh, our sister station Free FM in Hamilton does not charge a program maker fee, mm. however they are heavily sponsored and subsidised through advertising. I don't like that model because I do not want to put commercial imperatives on a program where someone should be able to completely be themselves. It, um, so it really depends. Um, uh, there are other stations that um, 
locally have been given free space to have, I mean, we pay $80,000 a year rent. So, you know, and I have staff, so obviously money has to come from somewhere. But in a smaller town where rent is 10000 a year or, or gratis, it's free, or their um, local transmission people have sponsored them by giving them free transmission, um, some of those places don't have to um, charge. Oddly, some of those places also don't have very many programs, which is strange. Hmm. So, yeah. But there are, there are, at different times, there's different funding I can apply for to enable people. So, for example, we, don't charge, we didn't charge for ages for refugee background programming because I got a separate grant to offset that. So that's uh, Kristen Patterson, who is the station manager of Wellington Access Radio in Wellington, New Zealand. I am... Uh... I'm excited and flabbergasted. There's a few things that here with my uh, vast experience in in community radio and community media in the United States, there is a, I can't believe that there's, that the community is also supposed to uh, pay for some of their uh, access. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. $40 per hour. Yeah. But you know, that is already being subsidized right. by the, by the federal government. It's a different model. It is a different model. And, and and when I talked with Kristen a little bit about that model, she was also a bit flabbergasted that community radio in the United States is mostly listener supported. Right. They don't have a history or really a model of listener supported media in, in, in New Zealand. And um, who can blame them for not inventing it? Because everyone <laughs> who works at a radio station or community media organization that tries to fundraise from the audience knows it's... Uh, it's daunting. It's a huge ask to stop to stop making radio and start asking the audience uh, to keep the radio going. So yeah, it's I, interesting. I, I've heard you know in the United States, I've heard of some community radio stations that charge a membership fee yeah. for their programmers, and and I also know of stations that have required programmers to bring in a certain amount of underwriting. So it's a similar. Similar right. model, but the but the rules in the United States are different. So you can't have pure pay, pay to play. You can't you can't you know pay to have well for a radio a, for show. on a on a non commercial radio station, yeah. right? right. And, and they don't have the same division of non commercial commercial radio stations in New Zealand. Well, it also sounds like in New Zealand that there's this very explicit policy that uh, just because you can pay doesn't mean you should get on the radio, right? They want people who can't pay right. to have the access. But that sounds like a tension, an unresolved tension yeah. that, that we can no, learn that more like about. A big, yeah, definitely. I was struck by that too, Eric, that if some of the groups who would have the hardest time paying are the ones that they really want to get on the air. Yeah. Well, as you can hear, uh, Kristen mentions, you know, looking for grants, looking for other sources of funding right. uh, in order to help provide uh, that airtime to the mo- to the groups who need it most. This is very interesting to me that we're talking about this today on Radio Survivor because, you know, uh, I briefly mentioned a moment ago uh, – uh, the difficulty, the, the the huge ask it is for people who work in community radio in the United States to get the audience to fund the work, and um, we know that there's a that there's a, a there's a growing desire for for solutions to that problem, yeah. in in radio and in community. And in media. a way, I mean, the listeners are supporting it. 
uh, right through the government, through their tax money. Well, no, also through like local community groups. Sure. Like so, uh, for instance, Kristen so both mentioned both of those things, both like their tax dollars the Indian community. and the community. Yeah, like the Indian community there gets together to fund that programming. Um, so ostensibly, they're doing it because the listeners are are interested and able to do so as well, right? And and it's attention, you know, because there are costs to be paid, as we all know, whether it's rent, yeah. uh, electricity, internet access, and all. all the above staff and, and staffing as well to keep a community radio station uh, on the air. And yet, you know, I think so many community radio stations in the United States uh, would love it if half of their costs were covered. Right. Right. Yeah. By, by, by a government grant at the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, for instance, were, were to be able to cover half right. of their costs. Because we do have some government funding for, for public media in the United States, but it's a, it's a difficult bar to reach for a lot of smaller radios. It's an impossible bar to reach for, for low-power FM stations to get to the uh, CPB funding that, that larger stations are able to attain if they can uh, manage the complex paperwork yes yes exactly and you know listening into these stations i listened to wellington access radio also i was in auckland the largest city which is up on the north part of the north island um listening into the access station there you know i often didn't hear english throughout the day and heard a variety of, of other languages and you know i think that this is something i've talked about as a challenge to a to community radio stations in the United States is, is what I call the patchwork schedule. And right. I, don't, I don't mean it really as a, uh, to put it down, but that often you have very dissimilar programming, you know, on the schedule backed up against each other, right? Where you can go from folk music to, to like punk music. You can go from Chinese uh, language Chinese programming language to, to English Samoan, language programming to English, to, to Spanish exactly. language programming. And for the average listener who isn't acquainted with community radio, um, sometimes that's actually a challenge. And, and you have to almost educate uh, your audience to understand and embrace this different model uh, of programming. And I think it's become all the more trenchant in the 21st century where commercial radio and public radio themselves have become more strictly formatted. Public radio stations tend to be talk or music. They don't tend to be both now. Yeah. Uh, you know, commercial stations will be country, classic rock, right? And they don't deviate very yeah, much not, from that Not to format. mention that audiences now are used to uh, clicking what they want when they want and getting what they expect. Yeah. So I put that question uh, to Kristen Patterson, who is the uh, station manager there at Wellington Access Radio, to find out, you know, how do they go about helping to to build an audience for all all these different disparate communities and, and programs? That is really difficult. And I've been trying to play a lot in the last few years. Like when I was doing the student radio job, it was like, hey guys, cool music station. Everyone was like, yes, great. Much harder to say, hello, new Swahili show. You know, um, I'm not part of those communities. So it, it's actually quite frustrating. We basically try to um, educate our program makers how to outreach in their own community. So it's like, take a flyer to your church. Put one up at work. Tell your friends. Start a Facebook page and invite your friends and tell them to invite theirs. Because if you don't do this, you are screaming into the abyss. It is pointless. Um, one of the issues is we've got a lot of program makers who are a lot older, who back in the day when they started doing the program, 
there was no internet, right? So they're just like, but we were the only way that you could get this. So we just assume that everyone still listens. I'm like, nah, you're not telling them that you're still here. And actually, they're online listening to an Indian radio station that streams from India. They're not listening to your show at 7.30 in Wellington. So that's a tricky one. And I, until I'm blue in the face, keep saying to people, tell me what's happening on your show. I can pop it up when we put the podcast up and put metadata in for people to find it better. They just don't tell mm. me. Um, and so when we put the gear in, they're all going to get sat down for an hour for a super intensive, this is how to promote your blooming program. Um, but, you know, other other people are really good at doing it. Like, um, uh, our, um, oh God, what is it? Uh, da, 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 Assyrian program, Voice of Nineveh. Um, he hops on Facebook Live, gets 5,000 views a week. Wow. Which is cool, right? I'm like, ah, you're getting the whole Assyrian community in New Zealand. You know, those demographics, like commercial broadcasters, would love to get 100% listenership, right? So some, it just depends on whether people do it or not, um, the, the publicizing of it. And I know, like, our Tokoloan language program, only one in the country, every single Tokoloan in New Zealand listens to it. Every Tokoloan I have ever met is like, auntie, on Thursday nights, it's like, everyone <laughs> shut up, radio's on. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah. But yeah, trying to upskill people on the digital aspect of it is tricky. You know, we keep, they get a bit confused, they they get a bit of a wall up, pretend they understand and they don't, and I get frustrated. I'm like, we're not trying to patronize you. We know you don't know this. Like, work with us to try to understand it, see the benefit of it. Um, yeah. But then on a station level, we just use like Facebook, we put um, notices in community newsletters, we just did a big poster run, um, trying to figure out different ways to to get that message out. Like when I started working here, everyone was like, that's just that old, weird Pacific Island religious station. I'm like, so when you've tuned in, it was probably on Friday when Samoa Capital Radio was on all day, and you heard some hymns and Samoan. But after that, Esther and I kick in with a feminist program in English. After that, there's an intellectually disabled dude playing his favorite show tunes. After that, there's a Samoan program again. Then you've got a political activist singing acoustic music followed by a Cook Islands program followed by a really incredible minority music program that is ethnic stuff sourced from across the world, followed by a Tokoloan show. You know, it's and the, but then, like, Wednesday... Yeah? Um, you've got kids from the girls' school over the road, hmm. followed by, like, this is a trans and gay youth show. This is a How to Speak Mandarin program. You know, it, it's... I mean, this is um, garage rock and surf music from the States. So it's 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 fascinating. That's a blues music program. So it's whatever time that you're going to tune in, you're going to think we're something different. And that's the perceptual issue that right across New Zealand we're trying to work on in the access sector. How do we market ourselves as the umbrella? How are we actually going to do this? Um, we are all things to all people. <laughs> We've got to communicate that. Um, but we're going to be working with Auckland University of Technology this year as a sector, they're going to take us on as their client, as students, and um, do a marketing campaign and see what might work. And that voice you just heard is Kristen Patterson, who is the station manager at Wellington Access Radio in Wellington, New Zealand, the capital city of that country. This is Radio Survivor. We're talking about community radio and other radio in New Zealand. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reesmandel. With me is Eric Klein and Jennifer Waits. 
Paul, I just heard like five different show descriptions that I actually really want to listen to. It's all online. It's interesting that, you know, she's talking specifically about the local community, but it, I'm I'm intrigued too. So it'll be interesting. I also like the idea of this partnership with the university to have students figure out a marketing plan. And I'm, you know, I wonder if that will include people like me who who may not live in New Zealand, but who might be interested in some of these, you know, intriguing programs. Absolutely. And and we had a, you know, we talked a little bit more about, you know, just this challenge of, of getting folks to understand what it is that that they do. And and what Kristen pointed out to me is is that uh, the association of access radio stations, there's about twelve of them around the country, I mean they've talked about listener funding and maybe having a listener fund drive uh, once a year or something. And she said, you know, she worried that part of the the downside to that, right? is getting uh, you know the middle class, mostly white folks who are likely to be your funders to kind of understand that they're funding an idea. And I think community radio stations in the U.S. have the same problem. You're not just funding your favorite program, but you're funding the idea of access. Whereas I do think... The alternative media, you know, exactly. having, having alternate voices than the corporate media on the airwaves is so important. I feel like I'm in fun drive mode all of a sudden. Exactly. Rather than just sort of, I'm funding my favorite uh, two hour folk show. And while, I mean, and if people do that, that that's great. As long as they understand that, you know, the, it's paying the bills for everyone. And, and it, you can see it, 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 it getting that idea across uh, is still difficult, even in this day and age in, in, in the 21st century. I, I'm much more excited about their government funding model. <laughs> yeah, of course. And 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 there's actually some fascinating history about how Access Radio started. In New Zealand. In New Zealand, yeah. Because it started with Wellington Access Radio. It was the first station. Um, and so we'll have Kristen tell us that little bit of Ooh. history. So we had an interesting history where our public broadcaster, Radio New Zealand, started Access Radio under its umbrella um, airtime was free and it was just on a different frequency but from their studios and had different management and then I think that maybe happened for around eight years then Radio New Zealand said they were going to start charging an airtime fee and somehow I'm not exactly sure how but Access ended up at our station because we were the first one um, ended up leaving and setting itself up as independent and getting its independent channel of funding straight from the government. Um, and after that, there was, then I think it was Auckland, then Christchurch, and basically this model was so successful, um, you know, pre-internet, like, oh my God, I can listen to the feminist mother's hour, or wow, there's, you know, a, a show in Arabic, this is insane. And it was, it was huge and it really took off. But it was driven by public demand, that was the thing. Um, RNZ didn't just decide to start it. There was there was a lot of kind of lobbying and activism, and so we've had some amazing broadcasters here that I've had the, the honour to meet who were involved in that beginning. They literally went to the government and yelled at them and said, where's our representation? Um, but it's also interesting to reflect on the fact that um, one of the reasons for Section 36C in the Broadcasting Act, which is what we under, um, we during we got really hit hard with neoliberalism in the 80s, like it was just such an about turn. Um, and a few people, so we, we deregulated the radio bandwidth and just said, everyone who can pay me have one. And a few people said, well, hang on a second, 
if, if there's no government remit to actually like cover people, then how's that going to happen? So that's where 36C was put in. So it's incumbent on the government at all times to provide this content somehow. Um, and we just happen to be the most effective, cheapest way. Right. Um, but some of that 36C funding goes to TV to produce children's shows. So it's, you know, we're, we're not the only people in the country who get it, but yeah, we fulfill it the most. So I, I find it fascinating there, as, as Kristen Patterson explained, that community radio, community access radio, grew out of public radio in New Zealand, you know, and, and, and out of that, yeah. that sense that public radio needed to expand its service, really. Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious if you asked about college radio, because that I always think about so many people in community radio coming from that college radio background, and, and this is a completely different origin story. Well, it's no different origin story for the station. It's not necessarily a different origin story for the people who produce radio. And in fact, you know, I was interested to find out Kristen's own story. She's the general manager, the station manager of Wellington Access Radio. And I think you'll be pleased to find out uh, where Kristen got her start. So I was doing a media studies degree at Victoria University, and they didn't have... A student radio station. So their station had nearly bankrupted the Students Association and was sold off. So that's radioactive. They're totally independent now. But traditionally, our like student slash New Zealand music stations have been university based, and BFM in Auckland still is. Mm-hmm. RDU in Christchurch still is. Radio One Dunedin still is. Um, but yeah, Active went off on its own, and. As a private entity, it just started playing like really cool music and became a really hip station. But a student couldn't get experience there. The doors were firmly shut. So me and a couple of very enterprising friends started an LPFM station up at Victoria University called uh, the VBC, <laughs> uh, Victoria Broadcasting Club. Um, and I managed, co-managed that and I was the music director, programming manager for five years and... Then, yeah, we ran a gig guide and we ran gig nights and stuff off the back of that. Um, and then I wasn't really getting paid, so I left doing that. Uh, and then I did a show for our now defunct New Zealand music station, Kiwi FM, in Wellington, for a year. Um, then went to journalism school, uh, got hired by Radio New Zealand, and then was told that actually they were not going to be taking on the two new journalists they just hired. They were actually sacking 12 because of cutbacks. And then this job came up and I came to work here. So the low power FM is, that's a, a class of stations here, I understand, that yeah. are unlicensed, yeah. but you can broadcast for like a watt of power, yes. right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they're all FM. Um, and it's basically just a bit of bandwidth that it's, how it was described to me that basically if LPFM stations hop on there, it actually kind of stops the main stations like um, stuffing up uh, aircraft signals and stuff. I don't know, it's some kind of thing like that. But yeah, it's completely the Wild West. Um, but Radio Spectrum Management, who are, you know govern all that sort of stuff, have said if you misbehave, it will just take it away completely and ban you all. So it, it has to be self-moderated in a way. But it's hilarious. Like LPFM stations hop onto each other's Wikipedia pages and edit them to accuse them of um, broadcasting over <laughs> each other's signals. It's quite funny. 
What's quite interesting is that I guess our LPFM stations are actually quite similar to community radio elsewhere. Because in New Zealand we don't have like community radio funded, it's community access radio that's funded. So that diversity remit is really in there. So that traditional thing of like nice talking heads, contextualising stuff on a local level isn't really what access does. Like we don't have a journalist, I'm, we don't do a news show. Like I trained as a journalist yet I wouldn't do that here. So the community stations who never get funding and are just low power fill a lot of that niche. And they're really diverse across the country and it's cool because you get these local personalities who just have stuff to say. Um, I wish that that was funded here, uh, separately to what we do, um, but I really wish that that was funded here because it's really got its, a, a very special place. So that was Kristen Patterson who is the station manager of Wellington Access Radio explaining a little bit of her own history because you know right. how do you get into community radio I think well, it's a fascinating question for just about anybody not only that but I think we've talked about this on another episode of Radio Survivor but I, I would like to uh, underscore yet again uh, something that our, our guest had just mentioned was that is that in New Zealand they reserve a band uh, a, a chunk of the radio dial for what in our culture we would essentially be calling pirate radio or you know right exactly for unlicensed stations but they're not pirate because they have because they're allowed to, be to there. go on the air but they don't have individual paperwork permission they don't file they don't they don't fall they follow rules that are uh dare i say anarchist in nature they follow a code and they all sort of agree that they're gonna not step on too many toes otherwise the whole uh they're gonna the government's gonna take their toys and go home the government's gonna shut them all down but other than that uh, if you want to go on the air in New Zealand, low power, you get to go on the air. How much bigger yeah. is that than what uh, we have here in the United States? Yeah, I was curious about that too. And like, what kind of wattage can they broadcast at? They can broadcast with one watt of power on the FM. Um, and it's from 86.7 FM. So it's a little lower on the dial than a lot of radios in the U.S. go. Mm -hmm. Uh, up to 88.3. And help me understand a watt. And, and then also, they can broadcast from 106.7 to 107.7. Oh, so they got the top of the dial as well. And the bottom. I mean, one watt of power uh, is one-tenth. I mean, it's one one-hundredth of what a low-power FM station okay. in the United States is is So is it's a few blocks. Authorized with. Um, Roughly. A kilometer or so. Okay. So, you know, in, in that sort of uh, three-quarters of a, you know, sort of two-thirds of a mile, basically. Uh, it, you know, a lot of these things depend on where you put it, how high up, what what the geography is sure. like. But about about a kilometer is a useful useful. Yeah, it's about a useful me. measure there, and that's and that's the. Uh, I want to say pirates. I can't help it. Saying saying pirate radio just is the punchiest way to describe going would on it, the air without government paperwork. And would it would they be considered? So in the United States, you can broadcast in a very, very very low power. Uh, without being regulated, right. how does that we call compare? It part, part fifteen, right? Is right. Yeah, part yeah. fifteen. Well, because those rules, those FCC rules we have in the United States, called Part Fifteen, which govern like the little transmitters you might use in your car to to, right. to put your our, our uh, original your, guest on your phone into the radio. Our original guest on Part Fifteen described uh, a wireless uh, radio receiver for your for your hi-fi system in the in the early part of the twentieth century, like broadcasting your record player to your speakers. Via, via part fifteen right, radio to, to, inside to, because your because you only have a radio and a record player, which, right? Which delights me to no end because that's the sort of wireless technology that we that we associate with right. the twenty first century, right. not not the twentieth. And, and on a grander scale, part fifteen would also encompass 
uh, a radio station broadcasting to a college campus. Yeah. So. Yeah, the Part 15 rules are actually about unwanted transmission. So basically, any device uh, that 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 create that does things with electricity can possibly also transmit radio frequencies. And so the Part 15 rules are there to in limit... In the United States. In the United States to limit how much unwanted uh, emissions can happen. And so Funny. it says on the FM band, you can only have X amount of unwanted emission. Uh, you know, in the FM band, it's not defined by watts, so it's hard to compare yeah. I don't even what want to is start. or is yeah. not. Re- but, but you can sort of say... It, it, a lot of folks say, like, you know, basically 10 milliwatts of power. So, you know, which is about a hundredth of, right. of a watt uh, is about what you could probably use on the FM band and still remain legal. You can use 100 milliwatts of power or a tenth of a watt on the <laughs> and, AM band. And I want to remind listeners, especially maybe just tuning in on the radio, that the reason why we're going down this winding path is that there is a set of complex rules that govern how you can get on the air in the United States. and they're Without a license. Without a license. And they're different in New Zealand. More people can get bigger yeah. radio stations well, in the New Zealand stands New Zealand. out. I don't really know of a country that has specifically carved out part of the broadcast spectrum and said, you may broadcast here unlicensed within these parameters. Go at it. Yeah, it seems to be, I, I can't I find love it. There, there, I hear of countries where it's sort of tolerated, right? I think Japan has something similar to what we call our part 15. I think you get a little bit more power to do so, but not a ton. Um, and they call it mini FM, right? And uh, but I don't know all the rules off top of my head. And then a different episode of Radio Survivor, exactly. And then you know, I know in the UK you can get like a provisional license for like an event or a carnival or something, and broadcast with low power for like a few weeks or a few months. Cool. But that's that's about it. And so it's a very unusual thing. But what it means is that at, at, you know why we started down the path is that uh, Kristen Patterson, who is the manager at Wellington Access Radio, got her start in radio by starting a student low-power FM station at her university, at Victoria University there in Wellington. And and at least one thing she didn't have to do was to go and apply for a license or raid, raid around for an opportunity as long as she got the funding and the permission from the various authorities uh, at her university, she was able to put that station on the air. So I asked her, I, I really wanted to learn more about uh, how how this happened. So she gives us this history of the VBC, her college radio station. Well, because we started it, so there's me and two other people. So we made it a limited liability company that was governed by a trust. And then on the trust, us three directors... So all three of us managed it, then we were also the directors, and we were on the trust, but we had four other people on the trust so that they could outvote us if we were being naughty. Um, And so we got someone from the Students' Association and someone from the university, and that was to maintain its independence. Um, Fell over after the original people left, and it's now called Salient FM, and it's just an offshoot of their student magazine. So it's been subsumed back into the association again. Interesting. Which they hate us for, because we promised them that they would never have to take ownership of it, and then we all left, and the people who took over didn't have that driving passion that you have to start something, so just, yeah. So now it's really just a tiny little studio where people occasionally go in and play some music. It's not the, yeah. What was that time period? So we launched in 2007. 
Okay, so you were there from like 2007? To 11, I think, yeah. 2011. Uh, that's a great story. How did you come up with the funding to start it? We kind of didn't. So we, <laughs> I, I had formerly worked for the Students Association as their um, women's coordinator. Um, and so I just said to them, let us have some free office space. And they said no. So the Māori Students Association, who hated them, said, we'll give you free office space just to piss them off. And we're like, great. Then we went back to the Students Association, can we have 10 grand to buy some gear? They said no. And we're like, oh, okay. So we physically built a studio in the, stu in the room ourselves with friends and some spare wood. Um, and we went to the Vice Chancellor of the University, Pro Vice Chancellor, and said, can you just give us some money, please? we would like to do this, and your school gets to say you have radio. And he went, I hate the Students Association, so have 10 grand. <laughs> so we went aboard. It wasn't proper radio yet, but we managed to get second-hand turntables, a double CDJ. Um, I think the Students Association, we conned them into HP high purchasing us a computer, um, got desks just from around the school. I mean, it was the smell, Morley Rag, it was hilarious. Um, and yeah. Boom, off we went. We were just using the free version of Station Playlist Pro. Um, none of us had worked in radio before, didn't know what we were doing, had to train ourselves up so that we could train the 600 volunteers that we had. It was epic. Um, and then once we were there, they were like, gosh, you proved that you could do it on like $10,000. Uh, I guess we'll help you now. So then the Students Association paid for our power and our internet and our phone and gave us a bit of money here and there. And could the, did the radios get out very much, or did you have? It did. You could actually signal? get it to Newtown, some places in Newtown. Wow. And, and Newtown is about how far away? From it's uh, oh gosh, I'm not sure because it's meant to be kind of like almost a one kilometer radius, right? Yeah. But it definitely would drift further because there was no one else and using. You're probably up pretty yeah. high. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what people don't realize is Wellington is a, is very 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 hilly. Yeah, yeah, and so the topography is ridiculously annoying. So some buildings in town couldn't get it because there's just too many buildings, um, but places further afield could just because no one else was on on 88.3 FM anywhere else. So it just kind of drifted that bit further, which was cool. But yeah, so that was it was a really exciting time, and um, a lot of people who, who did shows there went on to you know go to journalism school, go to yeah do the research and become journalists. So it was cool. It really proved its purpose, you know, that like if you actually get that experience, you can see if you're good at it, and also you can on your CV be like, well, I've done this, I've got that experience, because no one hires you in, for a media role in New Zealand unless you've got experience. How are you meant to get it? So. Yeah, I think that, that that's true everywhere, right? Exactly. That kind yeah. of uh, catch-22, if you will. What was the programming like? Um, so it was mostly New Zealand music stuff, but then also um, the, the Students Association had lots of different departments. So they had like a women's officer, international officer, gay officer, disability officer. So all of them would do a show as well. Mm -hmm. So it was actually, a lot of the programming was kind of similar to here. Um, majority was Pākehā. Anglo-Saxon white people, um, majority was English, um, which was a bit unfortunate. We tried to outreach a bit more, but people weren't that interested. Um, yeah, and so, and then we got a heck of a lot of music in from record labels who had felt very shut out by Radioactive, because they only really played dub music for ages. It was, like, I would never have listened to it then. Um, and so a lot of labels were like, you're actually going to play rock and roll music? That's so exciting. Um, and we played heaps of old like Flying Nun stuff and I don't know, whatever was really cool. 
around the place, um, lots of really underground New Zealand bands where it's just the production values on their demos were absolutely horrendous and we love that so much. It's very fun to play that. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was cool. That description should sound uh, rather familiar to you, Jennifer, and to other folks who love college radio. That description of the VBC, uh, the Victoria Broadcasting Club, a college radio station, an LPFM unlicensed station, but legal and licensed, started at Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand, uh, partially founded in part by... Kristen Patterson, who is now the uh, station manager of Wellington Access Radio. And and Wellington Access Radio, community radio, and just radio in general in New Zealand is a topic of today's edition of Radio Survivor. I'm Paul Reesmandel. With me is Eric Klein, and we have uh, Jennifer Waits, our college radio expert. Who, who I, I'm curious to hear your reaction here, Jennifer. I, I'm, I was so intrigued by how buttoned up the incorporation of the station was in setting up this, I think she's... I think she said it was a limited liability company and, and all of that organizational stuff that happened that was very official, but it's also an unlicensed station. So I thought that was intriguing and also that it was sort of born out of these, you know, uh, conflicts between different groups and creating it to make another group mad in a way. So I love that. It has sort of a punk rock edge to it. Yeah, I think we've heard these kind of stories before. It's always amazing when we're able to dive into the history of a station because as I think what, what we've learned much of the time is uh, the stations are old enough that the principals often are no longer around. Either either they're not accessible or unfortunately they're no longer on this mortal coil. And much of that, that fun history uh, is just lost to the ages because it didn't get written down. And and so it's sort of fun to hear hear that that history there. And, and to hear how, you know, the spirit... Um, and the impulse there in New Zealand, that sounds very familiar to us, I think, compared to uh, the sort of the differences that lie between uh, New Zealand community radio and, and uh, community radio in the United States. Yeah, it, I feel like the student impulses to have these sorts of stations playing a variety of programming, that, that seems to be something that's universal across you know, different countries. And, and I like hearing about that. I like hearing about that spirit and playing the underground music and the music that is the underground music that those of us not from New Zealand also associate with New Zealand, like labels like Flying Nun, she mentioned. Yeah, Flying Nun. Can you say more about that, uh, about that label and, and why maybe it, it, it is notable in, in the history of underground rock music? Oh, I mean, not. I, I can't give you the whole history of Flying Nun, but you know, there there's like pop and pop rock elements of Flying Nun that you know certainly uh, became really popular on college radio stations in the United States too. And I think bands like the Bats were on Flying Nun, if I remember correctly. Um, Very influential, yeah. right? And they came out of Dunedin which is a small university town uh, on the South Island. It's about midway down the South Island on the East Coast. And by small, I mean like maybe 20,000 people. And by virtue of geography, it's relatively remote away from other any major population center. It's a little further away from Christchurch, which is the major city on the South Island. It's very far away from Auckland. And right, the, the music was kind of lo-fi, 
and right had pop sensibilities but also a lot of noise sensibilities as i recall yeah yeah definitely um and and, I, I, and and it was influential on like artists like Nirvana in particular. I think uh, Kurt Cobain did a lot to raise the prominence of many of those artists uh, when in the rise of Nirvana because he cited them and often did covers of of bands from the Flying Nun label there and and from that area of New Zealand. Yeah, I mean it's definitely it's music that I like. Um, I, the radio station that I DJ at KFJC at Foothill College actually did a live broadcast from New Zealand from. Um, an event called the Dunedin Sound Festival. So it, it celebrated mm. that that very music that you're talking about. And, you know, a lot of those classic bands and I also think uh, some some newer bands as well. And that was a number of years ago, like maybe a decade ago. Um, but definitely an exciting, exciting event for the people at KFJC that went to that in New Zealand. Yeah, and what I love talking with Kristen, and what I always love talking with folks who do community radio, especially uh, in other countries and other cultures, is that we're reminded of the fact that what we have is not inevitable. Right. That other other futures are possible, other funding models, other models of programming and relationships to communities yeah. of various sorts. An- another media is always possible. Yeah, and that's something that, that I think we always have to keep at our forefront. And and you know what I've loved about Low Power FM in the United States, which of course is a licensed uh, form of radio, but is is you know inexpensive. Uh, there are more licenses of have been more licenses available as it's given. Uh, you know, cities the opportunity to have more than one community radio station often, yeah. which allows you to experience uh, to experiment with models, to try different things out, and and also relieve stations often of that burden of being all things to all people, which is like exactly to some extent what uh, Wellington Access Radio has its mandate to be in trying to serve all these underserved communities, uh, but that provides its own challenges as as folks, especially in, I think, um, what I would call sort of a legacy community radio stations. Community radio stations have been around for 20, 30, 40 years. They feel that weight of, of having to have all this responsibility, but then therefore making it a lot to juggle and, and difficult to develop listenership and teach people how to listen, especially in an on-demand age. Well, I love it because uh, I, I have experience uh, caring about certain kinds of community radio stations that you're talking about where... Uh, there's always the question, well, if, 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 if we haven't represented this group on the air and we do, and they, and that group gets a show because they need representation, where do, where does that process conclude? How many underrepresented or unrepresented groups get their own shows and when does it end? And I love the fact that in New Zealand, that's actually, no, no, that's why this station is here. It's here to keep Keep going forever. Keep finding more groups that are that and they need, use data. I mean, need, the, yeah, exactly. It's, it's not, I mean, That's so much a, of the time, I feel like it's a guess, right? Well, because here uh, the, the the kinds of relationships with the uh, uh, underrepresented groups and the community radio stations that I'm describing, it a one member who says I represent that group steps forward and say, "Give me a show," and if you don't, you're you're oppressing my group. Right. And uh, I like that in, in New Zealand, it's uh, there's yeah, a whole proactive, different set of relationships. They look at census data. Yeah. They talk to refugee groups. Like they're really going out to find the evidence for this. And it's not to exclude certain groups, but it's really towards that that form of inclusion. Um, Paul, do you know how how does the programming change over time? And yeah. and once groups become entrenched in the schedule, 
then how do you make space for other groups or is it just sort of a natural some people yeah drift my away, sense is that it is in? that it, 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 at the moment it's sort of in that model of attrition right where uh, people naturally come and go um I, I i otherwise we didn't really have much of that conversation but that's definitely the sense i got maybe um, new zealand is small enough that they don't have to fight over well, their station everyone gets along and is friendly <laughs> well as you heard you know that you know, uh, Christian did mention sort of a conflict where maybe one Samoan group is saying like, well, why is that other Samoan group get to be on the air? Right. You know, that, that it isn't completely without conflict, but that, uh, but that, yes, I mean, in some extent, you know, Wellington is a city of about a quarter million people in a metro area, still less than, I think, a half a million people. The entire country is four million people. So there is a little bit, I think, of uh, there's there's simply less population that it, that is being right. served because um, it is a, a much less populous country than the United States. And that, you know, and that all of, of New Zealand in terms of population, you know, is, is tiny compared to like just even New York State or, or, or California. Right. Uh, so I'm sure those some of those population dynamics come in. And did you did you get a sense that in some cases they might have shows from different representatives from different communities like multiple Yeah. Yeah, I definitely show. got the sense that yeah, there could be That's diff- really yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. That's because great. It, yeah, yeah just I, that. so what you're saying is uh just because one person gets in the door and gets a show doesn't mean that this community radio station closes the door to to anyone else who represents right, that group. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. and if if they're looked at as a group that 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 needs representation yeah you could have, uh, they could have two shows. they could have two shows right if, if and part <laughs> of it said they do have like to come that. up with the funding it, yeah then We're it feels funding, less yeah. like it's a token show if you have you know a bunch of different perspectives from a community yeah, um, yeah. i think that's great and it's, i think they're very much trying to avoid that kind of tokenism it's a neat model it'd be it's it'd be fun to be a part of that community and get to hear it uh week in and week out and sort of understand uh, as long as I can speak the language. But even if I can't, it would be neat to know that I'm turning on the radio and hearing someone that lives in my community speaking their language and, uh, you know, giving my ear to that sound for a little while. Yeah. and, and Not I to did... mention that the people in the audience who might appreciate hearing their own languages get to have that as well. Exactly. And I did get a chance to kind of tune around the dial as I traveled about uh, New Zealand. I was in Auckland. I spent some time in Wellington and I spent some time down in in, in Queenstown, which is kind of a a resort vacation community on a very large lake down in the South Island. Um, And it was kind of interesting is in Queenstown. Uh, it has a fairly, uh, it looks like a, a fairly well-developed station called Drop FM, and they seem to broadcast actually on frequencies in a number of different towns, uh, playing drum and bass music primarily. There you go. And, and, and various offshoots of drum and bass. And they and they have club nights at the clubs in Queenstown and some other islands on the South City, on and the South is- Island. Commu- non-commercial radio. This is low power FM. So this is okay. the un- this is unlicensed uh, ah, one watt right. stations. Uh, and it New was, Zealand pirates, if you don't mind. It was it so. was fun to listen to. Uh, I listened to quite a bit of it while I was in Queenstown because it was always something interesting on. And where I was staying there in Queenstown, the signal was booming in on my little portable radio. I have no problems getting it in. Um, up in Auckland. Uh, which is the largest city. I was staying up on the far, the north, far north side of the city. It's fairly large and sprawling. I, I, I compare it often to Los Angeles in terms of its geography and the way things are kind of spread out. And I was in this uh, community called Browns Bay, and I was tuning around, and I found uh, at least uh, one low-power station. 
Uh, and I found a list, and I tried to correlate it with the list because the station never ID'd itself <laughs> uh, during the time that I was listening for about an hour. I think it's called Great Tech Radio. It sounded automated in part because they had weather forecasts, but the weather forecasts were for like two days before I was listening on through about two days after I was listening. So clearly put into the, into the uh, uh, system uh, earlier and playing mostly uh, pop music, kind of oldies pop music, middle-of-the-road stuff with some various announcements, um, and I, I couldn't quite cite it out, and I, I wanted to try and learn more. But what I found as I poked around uh, these low-power FM stations unlicensed in New Zealand, it was kind of difficult to find a lot of them. Hmm. Like, you'd hear about one, you'd see one in a listing, maybe you'd hear it, maybe you wouldn't, maybe they'd have a website, maybe it wouldn't exist anymore. Maybe it wouldn't have been updated in four years. Sure. Maybe they were. Not, maybe they hadn't flipped the switch. Maybe that or, day, right? or right, exactly. It was. It was sort of a fun kind of uh, nighttime only. Hide and seek. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. yeah it does sound really like a treasure know. hunt. Yeah, so that was kind of fun. I also really enjoyed listening to Radio New Zealand, which is the uh, which is the public broadcaster there. And I came to understand that that you know some thirty years ago, uh, Radio New Zealand sort of tried to model itself after the BBC. And, and sort of the BBC at the time. So it was kind of stuffy, lots of very formal accents and things like this. And then uh, they sort of reformed and decided that they should be more like New Zealand, really, have like Kiwi culture there. And I love this show that they have on Saturday nights, which I have to point out is Friday night in North America because <laughs> the International Dateline. Um, Saturday night with Phil O'Brien, which is they call an evening of requests, nostalgia, and musical memories, and it's an all-request show nationwide. And he basically plays obscure requests, like he doesn't want to hear you say, "Oh, I want to hear Wind Beneath My Wings" by Bette Midler. No, he wants to know some crazy Neat. stuff. Could be a sea shanty. Could be I. I, <laughs> I, I learned that the band, uh, the Scottish band Aztec Camera, does a cover of Van Halen's "Jump." Because he played it, how and fun! And and that's on public radio, which is it's a, on public radio. I don't think, you know, I mean, does public radio even have music anymore? In uh, United some stations States, do, right? right? Rock music, but it's it's it. Yeah, it's a declining commodity. Yeah, that's really cool. It well, was a lot of fun, and so I will put this in the show notes at radiosurvivor.com so you can learn how to listen to all these great stations that we've talked about. Here. I'm really glad you've brought us uh, back, Paul. Your experiences as well as this interview today with the. Uh, with one of the people that runs a community access station in New Zealand. Thank you so much. You're welcome. If you missed anything on today's program, you can always listen to it again online as a podcast or at radiosurvivor.com. You can subscribe to our show and listen to it for free wherever you get your podcasts. And we would love to have you. You can also email us here at radiosurvivor.com. Uh, the email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com and we'd love to hear from you. You can also reach out to us at any of the social media uh, channels. We're online at Radio Survivor all over all over those social medias. Radio Survivor is a listener and reader supported enterprise. To find out more, you can visit our website radiosurvivor.com slash support. Thank you so much for listening again to this week's episode of Radio Survivor, where we cover the world of community radio, non-commercial radio, and college radio. And uh, really, today was a truly global uh, program, so we're so happy that you could join us. On behalf of myself, Eric Klein, Paul Reismendel, who produced today's episode, and Jennifer Waits, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.